Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. What a show we have. We are putting a bow on the exciting year of 2022. Yeah, we've got a lot to cover, and so we're going to need our other co-host, Haley Knopf. Hello, I am here. Haley, this is your first year-end wrap-up show with us, so this will be fun. I'm excited. Yeah, I mean... I don't know how fun it'll be. There was, uh, there was lots of stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to do the show with you guys all the time, but there is lots to get to. Um, Alex I always did, getting too real. Too I know. Real. Well, you know, how, how much fun are we really looking to have? I wanted to close the loop on something we talked about briefly uh, last week when I was chastised, castigated, uh, cast asunder by my co-hosts for not watching White Lotus. I spent the weekend catching up on White Lotus to be in the whatever, the, the discourse. Yeah, right, right in that zeitgeist moment yeah. of White Lotus finale. I will say, we yeah. gave you a hard time, and I have <laughs> zero regrets about that because you did text us over the weekend and said that you were like halfway through the season, and I was thrilled by that. I felt yeah, like... Yeah, that was on that was like great. Saturday. Yeah. I was like, well, damn, okay, I'll I'm just I'm just sitting at home watching the kid. It's really not that big of a deal. So I don't really have a lot of hot takes. I thought it was... I mean, it was good enough that I plowed through it in a weekend. Great. But I don't know. It's like more of like a fun hangout show for me than some kind of like really groundbreaking uh, piece of entertainment. But it was fun. I've also been... I would agree with that. I've been bumping the soundtrack a lot. I really dug on this season the uh, sort of smooth Italian jazz ensembles, things like that. Um, So I don't know. There's a lukewarm TV take to uh, get us out. I think I was probably more into it than it sounds like the two of you were, but (laughs) happy to have you on board to at least like be a part of this conversation. Hopefully when there's a season three, we'll all be watching it at the same time. And and what a conversation it was. I mean, can can we go back? Remember (laughs) remember when I said I watched it? That was so crazy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. For the record though, I was super, I am super into it. I just would agree it's not like groundbreaking. Anyway, though, anyway, we have way more important stuff to get to. You know what is groundbreaking? A bunch of the things we're going to talk about to wrap up this year. There we go. Look Look at at that that segue. Well, before we really get into it, I do want to just give a couple of programming notes for the listeners. This is going to be our last official show for this year. As we've said a couple of times now, this is our big wrap up. All the biggest legal stories from 2022. Then we're going to have a couple things on the feed, though, over the next few weeks. The episodes of our Law School Promise podcast that I think we mentioned on the show a week or two back. We're going to run those for everybody. So that'll be an interesting one to catch up with over the holidays. And then we will be back with you in early January. And if that sounds to you like we're making up a pretense to take a couple shows off, well, you're exactly right. And uh, I have no shame in admitting this. So uh, we are very tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. The number of legal stories we're about to get into that made up our 2022, the the listeners will understand that we do need a break from this news. So let me just dive right in. So to kick us off, I want to start talking about the Supreme Court. There was a lot to cover here. I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but I feel pretty confident saying this year, the Supreme Court had the most impactful term of my lifetime, and we're going to be talking about the repercussions for years to come. I think it's really important that this doesn't get lost, that in our script, you have titled this segment SCOTUS Gone Wild, which (laughs) I very much appreciate. It's obviously not weighing in on the merits of any of the decisions. It was just a, you know, it's just a lot to keep up with. Exactly. It was a lot. It was a lot. But so let's get into it. So remind us what all the big stuff was. 
Yeah, what about that big stuff? Yeah, big, big <laughs> overview here. I do want to back up my claim of most important term yeah, please. of my life. We saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade, a major expansion of the Second Amendment, a push toward more deference to religious expression, a big blow to the power of administrative agencies and basically how the federal government functions. And on top of all of that, as if those things on the merits weren't enough, we had the first leak of a full Supreme Court draft opinion, and that was just one element that fueled this overall perception that there's a full-blown legitimacy crisis at the high court. So all eyes were on the Supreme Court this year, both for the rulings, but also for just what's going on with that major body in American politics. Yeah, we also got a new Supreme Court justice this year, which is usually like a top sort of line story for recapping the court in any given year. But this was almost it was almost like an afterthought, given all the stuff that happened within the four walls of the institution. So you gave us a brief rundown there. Where should we start? I wanted to tick through some rulings first. I will try to keep this as breezy as we can, but I, I feel like we need to just run through those kind of big buckets of them that I talked about. First one, religion and basically the separation of church and state. There were three key cases here that, that people should know about. One was about a praying coach where the court found a school district violated the First Amendment by suspending a high school football coach who prayed on the sidelines immediately after games. We also had a ruling in favor of parents in Maine who challenged a state tuition assistance program because it excluded sectarian schools. And then we had to round out this group of religious cases. The justices said that religious flags were permissible. So that came up in the context of the city of Boston was found to have wrongly denied a religious camp's request to fly its Christian flag at City Hall as part of this broad flag raising program. A lot of blockbuster opinions. But what, what do these all mean together? Yeah, when you take those as a group, and I think they mean this individually too, but because there were three, it felt like a real statement from the court. They were saying that it's much easier now for religious expression in public spaces like schools, municipal buildings. It further blurs that line between church and state. The line between church and state is a little bit blurrier, and even uh, the reach of state power is also a little bit more uncertain, because there's another sort of bucket of cases here we want to talk about, which you referenced up top about the limits of administrative authority and particularly how that, how that manifests in like climate change questions. What do we need to know there? Yeah, climate change would be big enough, but this one's also broader than that. So the case is West Virginia versus EPA. And in that one, the justices ruled 6-3 that the EPA did not have the authority under existing law to implement sweeping regulations on energy systems to lower greenhouse gas emissions. The court basically said the EPA overstepped because the Clean Air Act doesn't clearly give the agency the authority to impose broad regulations related to climate change. Okay. So like you mentioned, this was a lot broader than just something with climate change regulation. What would you say is like the bigger takeaway here? Yeah. I mean, obviously a, a big blow to climate change regulation to begin with, but also the broad implication that I think we will probably come back to again and again in future years and future cases relates to something called the major questions doctrine. The court said basically that agencies can't use a broad authorizing piece of legislation to implement major policies. That could hamstring not only environmental regulations, but a whole host of other things, including rulemaking over labor rights, consumer protection, various financial regulations. And that's just to name a few. This could be very sweeping. 
And it's overall a big blow to the activities of the federal agencies and what power they have moving forward. Let's switch to another kind of high-profile topic here. It comes up at every Supreme Court confirmation hearing for a reason, and that's gun rights. And there have been several high-profile cases over the years, and we got another one this year, right? Yeah, and honestly, I think this could have been the marquee case of the term were it not for our number one spot that we're going to talk about in a second, which of course is abortion. Everyone has that top of mind. But right, this is, right, right. This is definitely right up there in terms of importance. Two New York residents had challenged a century-old New York state law that restricted gun carry licenses to only those who could show proper cause. A now familiar 6-3 lineup ruled that the New York law was unconstitutional. The ruling says for the first time that an individual's right to bear arms applies outside of the home. And it lays out a new standard for evaluating gun restrictions more broadly, and that's whether a regulation is consistent with America's historical tradition of firearm regulation. The effect of that one seems fairly obvious. I, I, I feel like it almost doesn't need to be explained, but let's get into it nonetheless. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's right there in the face of it. They expanded the Second Amendment. The ruling does just that. It greatly expands that Second Amendment right to bear arms. And it does so at a time when gun violence is rampant in America. I think for me, what was perhaps most notable about this case, since it did fall in that increasingly familiar 6-3 split that we're seeing on the court these days, was just how distilled and strident the opinions were, both the majority and the dissent. So if you are in any way following the gun debate in America and want to have a really strong argument on either side, read those opinions. They really lay out the broad brushstrokes of what's going on in the debate about guns in America. And with that, as, as we've already alluded to several times here, I think we should definitely make some space to talk about the landmark abortion decision that came down. It's the Dobbs decision. It matters not only for what what it does to the law of reproductive rights in the country, but also the circumstances under which the public came to learn about it. A lot of different prongs there, but just the uh, old give us leak. The, yeah, 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 yeah. I give honestly, the, this just goes to show what a uh, noteworthy year this was that I like forgot about the leak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does feel like a million years ago in some ways. We've had just a lot of things to process, but let's start with the ruling itself. Yeah. The high court again ruled 6-3 in a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization to uphold a Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. The ruling overturned the constitutional right to abortion established nearly 50 years ago by Roe versus Wade. As is abundantly clear at this point in the year, the fallout was swift and substantial. Many states banned abortion or severely restricted access to it in the wake of this ruling, those contours are actually still playing out with a bunch of litigation around the nation, some of it over the state laws themselves, how they were implemented, along with sort of newer questions about things like a state's ability to restrict travel to other states for people who are seeking reproductive care, things like surveillance around how the laws that each state's are implementing are enforced. So still plenty of fallout will be coming next year and in in following years, probably, this will take a long time to sort out. In terms of real-world impact, I, I think that is also fairly obvious. This ruling is huge. It directly affects thousands and thousands of women around the country and their bodily autonomy. 
It also, on the flip side, fulfills a long-fought-for standard for anti-abortion advocates who believe the practice should be outlawed. So they see this ruling as a very just victory that sets aside a precedent that they thought never should have existed in the first place. So in addition to all of the extremely important cases that were decided, there was a lot of discussion both on this show, on the term, and any other sort of corner of legal media, legal academia, about the Supreme Court as an institution and the way it's changing and the way the public perceives it. And a lot of factors go into that. But what do we, what are the big kind of pillars there? I think the big takeaways here are the ones that are going to continue to last into future years. So first, this was the year we saw a fully reshaped Supreme Court. The six-judge conservative supermajority was in full force, taking up a bunch of hot-button issues, as we've clearly talked about here, and voting mostly as a block to pull the jurisprudence decidedly toward the right. Though the power now sits with conservative majority, I did want to shout out Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Alex, you had mentioned our new justice getting seated this year. She did take her seat on the bench on the liberal side. Justice Jackson has been pretty vocal so far in oral arguments and in some initial writing. And we're going to learn a lot more about her jurisprudence as opinions are handed down in 2023. So those are sort of structurally, like, where does the court sit ideologically, kind of, that orients us for the future. But then I wanted to get into this more raging debate about the court's legitimacy and whether or not that's actually been tainted over the past year. One area playing into this legitimacy concern is, in fact, around that leak of the Dobbs opinion that we referenced earlier. Several months before the official ruling was made public, a draft version of the majority opinion was leaked to the press. We still don't know who leaked it. And leaks have happened at the high court before, but not at all to this scale. This was the first time a full draft ruling had gotten out. And not on a case that was, I mean, all the cases are important in their own way, but this is like a generational decision. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the kind of case that people will know the name of it off the top of their head. It's, yeah. it, this is a huge ruling. So many have pointed to the leak as a sign that the justices and their staff are more political than ever because this was a politically charged issue. And many made the argument that the ruling reflected that. And it also just sort of shows that the norms that once kept the court above that political fray may be falling to the wayside. So very impactful, that leak, in terms of what it says about the court. Also, the Dobbs ruling itself basically drove a stake through the heart of stare decisis. And that's a move many court watchers say is also undermining the legitimacy of the court overall. Roe versus Wade was the law of the land for 50 years. More than that, it had been revisited in the 90s in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and that core protection of a woman's right to choose was left intact. And so for that to just be overturned when the majority on the court shifts has left some people scratching their head about whether or not that's how it should work. From the conservative viewpoint, they would say that it was always a wrongly decided precedent and they are just writing that wrong the same way we would have over, say, Brown versus Board of Education. But the liberals um, made a very clear statement in the dissent in that case. And I think I read this on the wrap-up show we did at the end of the term where we supergrouped it up and met up with our coworkers on, on the term podcast and discussed all of these rulings. But I want to read this quote one more time because I do think it really says something about where we stand as just looking at the court itself. 
This is from the dissent in Dobbs. The court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only, because the composition of this court has changed. Stare decisis, this court has often said, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process by ensuring that decisions are founded in the law rather than in the proclivities of individuals. Today, the proclivities of individuals rule. The court departs from its obligation to faithfully and impartially apply the law. Now, great minds may differ on whether or not they agree with that quote, but the fact that it appeared in a dissent in a Supreme Court decision basically calling out colleagues on the court for not impartially applying the law is a watershed moment. So next up, we're talking trials here. I wanted to go through, there were a number of really high profile, both criminal and civil trials that played out pretty largely in the public eye. We talked about all of these that I'm going to break down here on the show in some form or another. There's not a lot of unifying stuff between them, but they were all pretty notable for for their individual merits. And I wanted to revisit some of them, uh, just just, uh, put them on everybody's radar here. And the first one I wanted to touch on is the decade-long legal battle between the conservative radio host Alex Jones and the bereaved parents of the school children who were murdered at Sandy Hook 10 years ago. That is a long and winding legal battle that really kind of reached the apex this year. There were juries in two states that put Alex Jones on the hook for almost $1.5 billion in damages for spreading conspiracy theories about this tragic shooting. This has a lot of different prongs to it. And as I say, it's kind of the culmination of a very, both a very arduous and because of the subject matter, a very ugly legal fight. That $1.5 billion number sure is eyebrow raising, but I guess we should probably revisit, you know, the, the underlying details here of this case as unpleasant as they are. Yeah, uh, we're actually, we actually happen to be recording this episode a day after the 10-year anniversary of of the uh, Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, where two dozen school children were murdered by a gunman who shot up the school. And immediately after that terrible tragedy, Jones, on his radio show and various other platforms, became fond of repeatedly insisting, like I say, loudly and very publicly, that the shooting was entirely a hoax, and even more pointedly and specifically, that the grieving parents who would make appearances in the media were faking it, were just crisis actors who were being paid to basically soften gun regulations in the United States. And as you can imagine, uh, the families were quite upset by this, in addition to being quite upset to begin with. And many of these families soon sued Jones for defaming them. And that led, that itself is a long and winding process. There were many years of mostly foot dragging by the Jones legal team, wouldn't turn over documents uh, in a timely fashion most of the time. And what you need to basically know is that because of that kind of sluggishness, non-responsiveness, there were default judgments against Jones issued last year in Texas and Connecticut. But this is the, this is the rare instance where 
the sort of arguments on the merits were cut, were a little bit of a foregone conclusion. Again, these are just default judgments. It just happens when one party is like essentially opting not to litigate or not litigate in good faith. And that left most of the intrigue to surround the damages phase, which played out this year, basically putting a specific question and the, and the specific question being how much is Jones going to have to pay to atone for what is, I think, even like, you know, just in polite society is regarded as pretty plainly disgusting behavior. Turns out the answer was a number that almost doesn't even sound like a real number. Um, yeah. So can you tell us more about how that played out? Yeah. So as I said already, there were two different damages trials in both Texas and Connecticut. And uh, like I say, uh, Jones ended up on the hook for $1.487 billion in combination of compensatory and punitive damages. Now, most of that uh, figure came through the Connecticut proceeding, and that, of course, is the state where this tragedy took place. Uh, it was, I think, like $1.3 billion of that figure came through the Connecticut proceeding. But it was the Texas damages trial that actually produced a lot of the like legal intrigue. You might remember that uh, an attorney for the Sandy Hook parents revealed to Jones when he was testifying on the stand that his own, that Jones's own lawyers had sent an entire digital copy of Jones's cell phone to opposing counsel, which included uh, like a series of documents about his company's finances that had not been disclosed through discovery. That landed, uh, if, as, as long as we're in the year-end content cycle here, that landed on uh, Andrew Strickler's biggest legal ethics miscues of the, uh, of the year. So wanted to shout that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it's sort of a, he's kind of a cartoonish figure anyway. And that was quite a scene to behold. To say the least. <laughs> I know that that damages trial is complete now and it's a little weird for me to recommend this, but if any of our listeners didn't read our coverage of that ongoing trial, I know it's finished, but it's actually worth going back to and reading because not only was there that big surprise of the cell phone data but also there was a lot of back and forth about Jones continuing his radio program throughout the trial yeah. of pictures he had with the judge's face and like flames and stuff. There was a lot of like crazy things within this proceeding mm -hmm. that are really worth a revisit as you're looking at sort of wrapping up your year. Definitely. And the other thing, too, was that there was very emotional testimony at both damages trials, for that matter, uh, by the parents themselves who like, of you know, of all the you know, you strip away all this kind of sideshow stuff that I, we are admittedly talking about. I mean, the you could tell that just the chance to even testify with him in the room, you know, it, it was very, very cathartic for them. But we do now have this question of, you know, uh, almost a billion and a half dollars. And it and there are you, you may be wondering to yourself, you know, Alex Jones is a successful media figure, but can he cover a, a billion and a half dollar legal tab? And it seems unlikely, uh, because basically what you need to know is that soon after these damages were firmed up, Jones filed for bankruptcy, uh, unsurprisingly listing the Sandy Hook parents as a top creditor because he owes them quite a bit of money through these proceedings. He did that in his personal capacity many months after his company Infowars did the same, also in bankruptcy protection. And that, you know, opens up a whole new stream of legal proceedings, which I'm sure we will keep you updated on. For their part, the Sandy Hook parents' attorneys have vowed to keep pressing for these verdicts to be enforced. But even if that money isn't paid, you know, as I already kind of 
said here, the parents have said that just even having several courts now openly rebuke Jones and basically say, yes, you are lying. We have the force of law behind us to say that you have defamed these parents. It provides at least some measure of accountability on that front. So the Alex Jones trials had a lot of spectacle, those cases, but there's another one that really caught the attention of pretty much everybody in America when it was ongoing, and that was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Yes, and this is another defamation case, actually. So we're staying in the defamation realm here, and that uh, was another very bitter trial uh, between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, who are two actors who used to be married. That took place over the summer in Virginia. Basically, each of them was accusing the other of defamation regarding claims that Depp abused Heard during their very tumultuous and brief marriage. And this trial was broadcast on court TV and various other media platforms and really took hold of the discourse in us. I was like kidding about the discourse. We were talking about White Lotus and all this stuff, but like really kind of took on a life of its own. There were entire like very young, very like not legally experienced TikTokers like offering very dubious armchair legal analysis. And it just, it just kind of ushered in this like very strange, like metafictional era of litigation uh, over, you know, claims of abuse and like the post Me Too landscape. So definitely a lot of uh, teasing apart to do here. Yeah, let's break it down. I mean, there's some pretty serious abuse allegations at the heart of this. And I think that did in some ways get really overshadowed by the spectacle of two famous actors testifying and saying some pretty salacious things about one another. Yeah, and I should just say, and I don't say this to absolve any party of the of the litigation, only to say that it was a very messy case. Each person at trial like presented evidence that they had both been defamed by the other and also abused by the other. And I'm talking like pictures of Amber Heard's face being bruised, like Johnny Depp's face all scratched up and like very, very heated, very contentious. But all of it then kind of surrounding this very weedy question of like, what is defamation and what do you need to prove and what you need to show and all of that. But the barest way I can explain it is that Depp sued Amber Heard over her authoring of a 2018 op-ed in the Washington Post which did not name Johnny Depp specifically, but was a, it was on the topic of being a victim of domestic violence and being silenced for it. And Amber Heard all but says his name there. It basically alludes to having been abused by a famous and powerful person and then, you know, referring to the terms of their divorce, not being able to do much about it. And then on the other side, Heard had countersued Depp over statements made by his attorney that described the circumstances about 911 calls that Heard had made to report Depp's abuse as, quote, a hoax. That's what Depp's, Depp's attorney said. These 911 calls are staged. They didn't happen. And so you can see how this, how this kind of devolves into quite a bitter fight very quickly. And so if I recall correctly, each of them came away with some sort of victory in this, at, at least partially. Yeah, so they both landed some measure of victory here, though both fell very far short of what they had sought, which you might expect that often happens in defamation cases. But Depp secured wins for about $15 million in total damages for being defamed by Heard's article. That was eventually actually cut down a bit to just a shade over $10 million. There are like damages caps 
in Virginia, while Heard secured about $2 million in damages from the statements from Depp's attorney about these 911 calls. But when you consider the disparity between the two verdicts, even though both of them were able to claim victory, there was a perception that Depp had come out as the primary victor, not only because he got more money than she did, but because her payment was substantially smaller than what she had asked for. She had asked for like $100 million in damages. She ends up walking away with two. And Heard's own legal team said as much afterwards that she was very disappointed that this case had played out along a slightly different fact pattern in the United Kingdom and, and Heard had won and that the burden of proof and like the slightly sort of different questions at play basically amounted to a total reversal here. So with that kind of mixed result, what are we to make of that? Are, do we have any takeaways from this? Yeah, there were a couple of interesting ones. And obviously, it's a, it's a very fact-specific case and an ugly set of facts at that, as I think we've demonstrated here. But I think a couple of the big takeaways is the social media part of it. The fact that it was being streamed, broadcast, you know, allowed people who do not ever participate in the criminal justice system or in thorny civil litigation to kind of parachute in and say, you know, Amber Heard sure seems phony when she's crying on the stand. And that's oh just boy. like, that like passed for legal analysis, like uh, for a non-zero amount of people. It was, yeah, I mean, we, you know, of course we didn't do any of that stuff and nor would I ever expect us to. But I mean, it just kind of really changed the way people were talking about this case. To me, it had a little bit of that feeling of when all of America was watching the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of that armchair quarterbacking on that, and you got similar takes out of Johnny Depp Amber Heard. Well, and it's funny you should mention that, because I I honestly wouldn't even, like, I might not even mention the social media part of it, except for, unlike in the O.J. case, the jury in the Heard and Depp trial was not sequestered. And there was a lot of commentary after, not just from randos, from like law school professors and lawyers who follow stuff like this, that like the combination of allowing the trial to be broadcast and not sequestering the jury. Now, there, we, we have nothing to specifically say the jury, I would not sit here and tell you the jury is influenced by these TikTokers. But like the circumstances like were in place for something like that to happen. And we don't know that for sure. But that raised eyebrows. The idea of both broadcast, allowing cameras in, and then not sequestering the jury was a little bit of a hornet's nest for a lot of, in in the eyes of a lot of commentators. There's also been uh, some follow-on litigation, which I just wanted to nod to here. Heard is now in a a legal fight. There has been a suit and a countersuit with uh, an insurance company that she uses over whether and to what extent that company's going to cover the cost of enforcing Johnny Depp's victory. So now she's like, there's a whole suit with her insurer that's going on. So it's, uh, you know, litigation, begetting more litigation as we so often talk about. Of course. Well, these were some some really big defamation ones, but let's kind of shift into another really big one this past year. We'd be remiss not to mention the Theranos ordeal, which of course, this could be mentioned at the end of many previous years as well. It just <laughs> continues to drag on. Yeah, This don't... was the year that we got a mini series about it though. So let's not That's forget true. that. Oh, I wanted to mention that too. I didn't even put that in the doc, but I'm glad you mentioned that. That is transcendent work by Amanda Seyfried. Uh, let me just, I mean, that is just really something. The dancing, the memes, we all know it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh, that arose out of a pretty serious legal fight, as, as we know. And Haley, uh, you put me on blast a little bit there. We did, in fact, talk about this among the biggest trials 
of last year, but... Because it was. I was. It, it sure was. And it sort of iterated itself through a whole nother stage over the course of basically the entire year of 2022. We are, of course, talking about the fraud saga of Theranos. I think most people know this now. That is the uh, now defunct blood testing startup founded by Elizabeth Holmes and her business partner and romantic partner, Ramesh Sunny Balwani. Now, each of those figureheads, Holmes and Balwani, were found to have defrauded investors with bogus claims about their technology, and they are still, to this day, embroiled in legal fights over the basis of those convictions and the sentences that were that were handed down to them. So there's we're sort of, you know, past the argument stage and into the conviction sentencing appellate uh, phase of it. Given that the, we've obviously talked about this before on our own show, and we just referenced a major Hollywood project over it, <laughs> I think most people know the basics. But what are kind of top line notes that we need to keep in mind to understand what happened in 2022? So as you probably remember. Holmes founded Theranos on the central promise that, you know, she could revolutionize the blood testing industry by being able to run, you know, dozens, hundreds of tests from just a few droplets of blood rather than taking a full blood sample. And in the process of making this pitch, she just raked in gobs of cash from very aggressive healthcare industry investors. Eventually, this proved to be an enormous scam. The technology straight up did not work the way she described. And in fact, they were mostly kind of repurposing existing blood testing technology with their own branding and branding from various investors. And that unsurprisingly led to uh, a very vigorous stream of litigation in California, which was kind of headlined by Holmes's weeks, uh, really months long, trial that uh, sort of wrapped up at the end of last year. And in January of this year, a California jury convicted Holmes of four criminal fraud charges. This, of course, relates to her deception with investors. They did clear her on charges that she had defrauded patients, which sort of was more of a... I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, like, well, and that got to a lot of this, like, discussion of, like, okay, are we really just, you know, bilking rich people out of more money? Or are we actually endangering people who are entrusting, you know, their, their, you know, this company with their medical information? She's cleared on the defrauding patients point. Um, she was eventually sentenced to just a shade over 11 years in prison. And she is currently appealing both the conviction and the sentencing to the Ninth Circuit. But what you may remember from our discussion, we had Dorothy Atkins on the show, who been covering this wall to wall. She does a great job. Definitely go back and read that coverage if you want to refresh yourself. A key part of Holmes's defense wasn't just the typical, like, you know, Silicon Valley, I have to be able to take risks uh, with my innovations, but also that she was being manipulated by Balwani, who she had entered into a romantic relationship with. And she had basically publicly accused him of physically and sexually assaulting her while she was serving as the Theranos CEO. And this led both of their trials to basically be severed. And it should be said, Balwani was not on trial for these abuse allegations, but they figured very prominently into the Holmes legal team's efforts to basically paint him as the true mastermind of this Theranos fraud. And Balwani, in his own trial uh, over the summer, was indeed convicted on over a dozen fraud and conspiracy counts And he was sentenced to 13 years in prison, 
uh, just last week. So it did really run the whole gamut of the year from Holmes' initial conviction in January to his conviction just last week. So, you know, that's a lot of wide-ranging trial action. And like I say, there are some pending appeals in those cases, and I'm sure there will be uh, many more to come. Some of the most closely watched litigation this year involved, of course, Donald Trump. We had criminal investigations. We had state-level litigation. We had criminal charges. 2022 really had it all. And by far the most noteworthy case that I want to talk about first here kicked off with the FBI's now infamous search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach That, of course, led to Trump's suit against the government. We then saw a special master appointed in that case and then unappointed, Mm -hmm. a word I am inventing right here on the spot. (laughs) And uh, the feds, you know, are continuing to sift through hundreds of these documents that were seized from his home. This kind of litigation really did dominate a lot of 2022 since there were multiple Trump and Trump organization related cases Got a little confusing to follow, if I'm being honest. So I think that's one of the nice things here that we can sort of tick through the year and make it really clear what has happened. So let's start with that big one. As you said, there were a lot of people talking about this FBI search. Orient us back to that time. What the FBI do and what's the case all about? Right. So this actually, the the roots of this here are in 2021, which is when the National Archives and Records Administration noticed that there were some missing records and started asking Trump to return them. And it asked repeatedly over the course of 2021. Trump did hand over a few boxes of stuff, not everything, obviously. Um, And in those boxes, they found a bunch of classified documents. So the archives then referred the matter to the Justice Department. And that's where we then saw that uh, search warrant and then the execution of the search warrant Uh, Trump confirmed that his home was being searched in early August. And according to the search warrant, which was um, unsealed pretty quickly after that, Trump is under investigation for obstruction of justice and potential violations of the Espionage Act. I'm not a data scientist. I'm really not. But I do think that 2022 probably set some kind of record for publications having to type the phrase special master. Oh, sure. uh, Which which we've already said a couple of times. How does the, so how do we get from this very high profile execution of this raid on the former president's house and these like looming, not charges yet, but then under investigation for these violations of these espionage laws and things like that. How do we get from that to the special master? I feel like I should know what the special master is, but it had a tendency to kind of gloss by me a little bit. What do we need to know? Yeah, the eyes do sort of gloss over when they see the word the phrase special master. I'll, I'll admit to that. It's, well, not so as, unsupp- it's not as Gandalf-like as you might think, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, unsurprisingly, Trump characterized that search as being a very like unprecedented attack on a, on a former president. The exact phrasing that he used uh, right when he was confirming it was happening was he said his home was, quote, 
under siege, raided, and occupied by federal agents. And a few weeks after that search, he sued the government in Florida federal court, asking that court to step in and block the DOJ's review of the documents until this special master, an independent third party, could be appointed to go in, go through the documents first, and pull out anything that could be privileged, like attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And also, he was like, I, I want a special master in here to make sure my personal, any personal belongings that were in the mix get handed back to me. So September is when we saw the Florida federal judge overseeing the case agree to pause the review and to appoint a special master. The judge who issued that order, that was U.S. District Judge Eileen M. Cannon, and she was appointed to the bench by Trump uh, while he was president. So she held in that order that Trump faced a risk of irreparable injury without a special master. She said that was because sensitive information could potentially make its way to the public or privileged information could be used in a criminal indictment against him. Judge Cannon ultimately appointed a another a senior uh, U.S. district judge that was Raymond Deary to serve as the special master. So the Justice Department didn't love that, and they actually appealed it. So what did we see at that point? Yeah, the, the DOJ, unsurprisingly to anyone, right away got in there and appealed it. I think it's important to know that this appeal was not just for the special master appointment, but it was also challenging the pause on the document review itself. And later in September, the 11th Circuit agreed to stay the part of the injunction that was blocking that document review. So in September, right, that was kind of an earlier win for the government here. The Theoretically, the, the Justice Department could keep, keep looking at these documents, but still under special master review as the 11th Circuit considered that portion of the appeal. And Trump here also, unsurprisingly, then asked the Supreme Court to vacate that, but that bid was ultimately unsuccessful. And the 11th Circuit eventually weighed in, not just on this, on what's going on with the document review, but the actual appointment of the special master as well, right? Yeah. After all that, after, I'll be a little woe is me here. I worked a late Friday night covering all of the special master nominees that both of the parties threw out there. And after all that, the 11th Circuit ultimately found that Judge Cannon just didn't have the power to block the government from using lawfully seized records in a criminal investigation, and the special master appointment could not stand. That decision came earlier this month. The panel held that the Constitution doesn't allow courts to carve out special exemptions for former presidents. Here's a quote from that order. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant. Nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Either approach would be a radical reordering of our case law, limiting federal courts' involvement in criminal investigations. So that order was issued December 1st, but didn't take effect for a full week. During that time, Trump theoretically could have appealed it, but he did not. And so that took effect, and the special master saga has come to an end. Okay, so that gets us caught up with one branch of things that have been going on with Trump and that criminal case in his individual capacity. 
But we've also seen some other criminal litigation involving the Trump organization. Can you tell us about that? The state of New York has also been investigating two Trump organization companies for tax fraud. Those companies are the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. And earlier this month, we saw a really noteworthy verdict in that a a Manhattan jury convicted both of tax fraud conspiracy involving their longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Specifically, the jury found both companies criminally liable for tax fraud, falsifying business records, conspiracy, and a scheme to defraud tax authorities, and a scheme in which Weisselberg and others were provided under-the-table executive perks. So kind of like with the Alex Jones thing, what does this actually mean? Well, these entities are on the hook for potentially $1.6 million in fines, which, you know, when you think about large corporations, that's probably not a huge bill for them. But theoretically, the criminal conviction could affect future business for them. So that's one Trump organization thing. But if I recall correctly, there was another dispute, uh, indictment. What was it, Haley? (laughs) What was the other thing with the Trump org? Because I remember one with a much higher price tag. Yes. The state of New York, this one is still ongoing. The state has also sued the Trump organization, alleging $250 million worth of fraud. And the big development in that one is that the state convinced a court to appoint an independent monitor to oversee the organization. So now the Trump organization has a special master, essentially. There's another special <laughs> master. Another special master that it has to share a bunch of stuff with. Yeah, to be clear, this one is civil, right? This was a civil company? Yes, the civil the company? Case. yes yeah. this one is civil. And according to that, that order earlier this year, the Trump organization is required to provide the special master with information on things like its corporate structure, its subsidiaries, and its affiliates. So Trump and his uh, kids and company executives have all tried to get that monitor shut down, blocked out of out of all of this. Um, but a state appeals court was not keen on that. the The one thing that did happen here is New York Attorney General Letitia James did agree to exclude Ivanka Trump from the monitor, but everyone else is still out here being monitored. We became fond of saying this when the when we were doing the show during Trump's administration and that just the fact that nobody with a profile quite like that person had ever been president was was inherently going to lead to a pretty unprecedented scope of litigation against that person just by the way that US business and political interests generally work and I think it's pretty clear to say with two years of a sample size that that is going to hold true even after he's left office because uh, this stuff is not really slowing down at all. Yeah, here we are. And I'm sure 2023 will will bring us a whole bunch of new things to follow as well. Speaking of that, that's actually a pretty good entry point to the final bit of today's show. I know we've talked about a slew of, of cases and developments that happened in 2022, But I wanted to look forward, just a little teaser for what we each expect to be big things we're following in the new year. Well, Amber, we started the show talking about SCOTUS. You walked us through the momentous term we just saw. I imagine there is uh, some interesting stuff on the horizon as well. Look, uh, Jimmy Hoover, our 
wonderful Supreme Court reporter and co-host of our sister show, The Term, is again going to be extremely busy. Yeah. No rest for Jimmy. Yeah. No rest I for mean, Jimmy in the new year. Absolutely don't think that the splashy issues are done because we had such a momentous term this past one. We're right now in the middle of another giant term. When we start seeing those opinions drop next year, I'm going to be waiting on several, wanted to just kind of tick them off. We could get rulings in, we, we will get rulings in a case that could give state legislatures vast power to draw district lines and set election rules. There's a pair of cases challenging race-based affirmative action programs in higher education that many people are waiting on and how that turns out. And there's a really important discrimination case over whether a wedding web designer should be able to post on her website that she won't design for same-sex couples. We actually talked about that on Pro Se recently um, as oral arguments just wrapped up for that. So those are all things we're expecting. Next year, um, you know, the terms always get really heated with these hot button uh, rulings dropping, usually uh, late spring. So keep your eyes peeled for those. The other thing I wanted to just kind of put on people's radar on, on my beat, my new beat, the sports beat, is we're going to get a lot more traction in this, in a case we've talked about before, and that is the antitrust case against the PGA Tour brought by the competing golf tour known as Live Golf, which is funded by the Saudi Arabian public interest or a public investment fund, rather. And that is already getting quite contentious. Basically, these are these golfers who signed on to the Live Tour uh, were basically banned from participating in any PGA Tour events. And they've now sued, basically saying that that is an antitrust violation. PGA has also countersued by basically saying that Live's kind of interference here basically amounts to meddling with their contracts with these players. Right now, the trial is actually not set until 2024. But they are currently in the midst of some very, very interesting discovery fights, which can be boring. But when one party is backed by the Saudi government, it's not because they've (laughs) already like uh, Liv has already accused the PGA um, in court filings of trying to tie Liv Golf to like the 9-11 attacks. And there's all this like fights over sovereignty and like whether and to what extent the Saudi government wants any of its dirty laundry aired in a U.S. court. I'm thinking no. So we're both kind of on like settlement watch because I'm sure a lot of people just want to see it go away. But if it doesn't, it's going to be very heated, very difficult to prove antitrust conspiracy and like pro sports. That's There's all kinds of barriers to that. Um, so I'll definitely be uh, on the lookout for that. I suspect it'll make uh, a few appearances on Pro Se as well. So stay tuned. Finally, there is a, a really big, big case that everyone's probably like, huh, why haven't they talked about FTX yet? Well, here we are. <laughs> I mean, in fairness to us, Haley, we did set up that FTX was a problem. <laughs> we just didn't get to any of the criminal charges because we were really early in the saga. Exactly. We're exactly. too good, really. I mean, that's, that's, that's right. Head that's, of the curve. that's what it comes down to. <laughs> too good. And the timing, frankly, was annoying because, you know, it was end of year. We're all busy. It's around the holidays. But in any event, this, of course, was the very dramatic collapse of what was one of the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchanges. That has since led to Chapter 11 proceedings. It led to the indictment of Sam Bankman-Fried, the the, uh, one of the co-founders and the CEO. 
And then most recently, we actually, I just covered this yesterday. There was in one of the bankruptcy filings, it was revealed that another executive at FTX actually tipped off the Securities Commission of the Bahamas that client assets were had been transferred over to another of Bankman Freed's companies to cover losses. So there's going to be, I mean, this is just getting going. There's going to be so much to follow with this in 2023. We're going to be so busy between another slate of blockbuster Supreme Court decisions, big things going on with golf, crypto. I mean, it's like a lot of buzzwords there. So I'm actually feeling pretty excited about the shows we'll tee up for next year. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I just wanted to say happy holidays to you guys and also to all of our listeners. We also need a break. So we're ready for those shows in 2023. Yeah, I'll second that. Uh, We're in what? Nearing an hour. We're at an hour. I don't know. We don't need to belabor this. But, you know, I had tremendous fun uh, doing the show with you guys all this year. uh, So I I thank you for making it as fun as it was and uh, looking forward to more. Yeah, it was my first my first full year with yeah. Pro Se. Yay! <laughs> Woo, I made it. You I didn't did. get fired. <laughs> you survived. You still like talking to us. That is the biggest win of 2022. So on that <laughs> note, thank you guys for being with me. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We absolutely could not make the show without them. And our contributing reporters is just going to be another one of those big shout outs to our entire newsroom. We have so much coverage on so many issues. It gives us tons to choose from when we're looking at a big end-of-the-year show. And throughout the entire year, they're really integral to writing all of the great stories that we pull from for what we're talking about in each episode. So thank you, Newsroom. We really appreciate you. Also, a shout-out for our music that comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. Drum up some other people for us to listen to the show. That's how other people find us, so we'd really appreciate it. And if you want to read more, that's when you go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, everyone, and see you in 2023.